0: So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again.
1: We're gonna spend the next little while reflecting on this text together. Well, imagine um, you just had the best day at work, whatever kind of work you do, whatever kind of place you work at, but everything went right. Uh, the projects you're working on made, made serious progress. All the important tasks got done. Some excellent conversations were had. And then you went out to lunch to your favorite spot. You know, the food was just right. It was just the best day of work. And you walk home sort of on a cloud and when you saunter through the doors of your house or your apartment, uh, you find a full-fledged argument just raging. <laughs> your, your roommates are, are having a blow-up, or perhaps children, if you have them, they are arguing about, about cookies or something, or the, or the neighbors are mad at you because, you know, your dog peed on their, their lawn again or whatever. Like, whatever your kind of home situation is, the elation of the day evaporates in the face of the grit of life. And instead of joy, and instead of this sense of accomplishment, there is only sorrow and sadness and frustration, and sort of one big sigh. That's where we find ourselves in Mark 9. Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain. If you are here last week, it was a transfiguration, sort of like a top three experience of the Gospels. The, The three disciples had seen Jesus, the Son of God, unveiled in all of his glory. Moses and Elijah were there. The voice of God, the Father, spoke. It was best day or best night ever. And then in verse 14, they arrive, and the nine disciples are arguing with with this group of scribes while a large crowd is watching because the nine disciples were humiliated by a ministry failure. And it's just sort of a big sigh, like, oh, here we go. But it's not really the arguing that's a problem. I mean, that's sort of a problem, but there's a boy in deep distress. There's a father who's out of his mind with worry. There's frustrated disciples, and there's an evil spirit doing immense damage. And Jesus and the three, they have left glory and wonder on the mountain and they have re-entered a world that's full of evil and sorrow and weakness and misery. And many of us know that world because that's our world as well, right? We, we know the dance steps of that world because we walk in them as well. But the good news of this story will be Jesus loves that world. He loves the world full of misery. He doesn't like that world. He intends to change that world, but he loves it enough to do something about it. Now, over and over in this story, faith and the lack of faith is featured, and we're going to kind of arrange our time around that scene. Now, if you don't even know what I mean when I say faith, all I mean is the belief in something you cannot see. That's how the book of Hebrews defines faith, belief in something you cannot see. But faith is not exactly the point, because if this is to be a gospel story, it means Jesus actually has to be the pivot point of the story. Faith, as we're going to see, it's not a lever that we use to get Jesus to do things for us. Even as we're going to discuss the need for faith and the need for wholehearted faith, we're going to see how it relates to the person of Jesus. So here's how I want to arrange our time. First, the insufficient faith of the disciples, we'll talk about them. The mixed faith of the Father, and then we'll talk about the object of faith, Jesus. So Jesus and the big three, they come down, it's chaos, a great crowd is there, the nine disciples are fighting with the scribes, Jesus interrupts, and if you look at verse 15, the crowd sort of dumps the scribes and the disciples to go and see Jesus, and it says, they are greatly amazed at him. It's not clear from the text why they are greatly amazed. Maybe he still has a bit of glow to his face, like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. Maybe there's there's still something fading off his clothes or whatever. We're not sure. Or maybe they were just looking for Jesus and they're like, oh, there he is. You know what? And then they're like, dump these guys and they're running over to see him and to greet him. And Jesus just starts asking questions What's the hubbub about? (laughs) Why are you fighting? And at first, the unnamed man, but we quickly learn it's the father of the son, kind of comes out of the crowd and tells Jesus the story. The boy has a spirit, an evil spirit, and it makes him mute. It makes him unable to speak. It can do harmful things to him. It can throw him down. It can make him foam from the mouth and grind his teeth. And later in verse 21, we find out this has been happening for a long time since the boy was small. Mark uses this word childhood, and that may refer to a child as young as an infant or a toddler, but the term is ambiguous. In verse 22, we learn the seizures are caused by the evil spirit. Sometimes when he seizes, he falls into fire or water in an attempt to destroy him. Now, what kind of thing are are the disciples dealing with? Against what has their faith been found deficient? Well, three of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record this incident, and all three of them call it demon possession or being, being, uh, having an unclean spirit. Um, there are a number of symptoms listed, and it does sound similar. If you're a bit of a medical background, you're like, this sounds similar to epilepsy. It sounds similar to epileptic seizures. And it's actually some older translations sometimes title this section something like Jesus heals an epileptic boy. And that's possible, but the scriptures never call it that. And I think often we make two mistakes when we get narrowly focused on, is, it a, is there a medical diagnosis for what's going on? One mistake, and it's usually on the more kind of progressive side, is to say, well, biblical writers are just using demon possession to describe a medical condition that they don't understand or that hasn't been diagnosed yet. And the argument goes something like this, first century Jews, first century anyone, didn't have the brain science to understand and discuss epilepsy, so it's not epilepsy, it's demon possession. And the the, the argument goes, but it's not a demon, it's just a medical problem, and it's not a demon, it's just biology. That's sort of one mistake, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But the second mistake is the opposite, which is to say, yes, of course it's demon possession, and that's going to be important, and whenever someone has a medical condition or a mental health condition, it's always related to demon possession or demonic influence. But here's why both positions are mistaken. In the first, you're clearly ignoring what the Bible says about what happened here and the existence of the spiritual dimension in general. The scriptures do teach that demons afflict people in physical and mental ways. Biology is not enough. It's not a sufficient enough explanation for our world. The story is not presented as a metaphor. It's narrated as factual. But in the second, to say such problems always have a demonic influence is also to say something the Bible does not say. And in many cases, outrightly contradicts. For instance, two weeks ago, if you were here, there was a blind man. There was zero discussion of a demon. The blindness... Not demonically influenced, as far as the Bible tells us. When there is, the Bible use, the Bible says, and it's not always there. Sometimes health problems, sometimes mental health problems are just the consequence of our broken world, our broken bodies. I don't think we need to go casting demons out of every person who has epilepsy or Parkinson's or an anxiety disorder. We should go as far as the scriptures go. Sometimes demon possession happens. Sometimes it causes physical symptoms like it does here, but not all the time. Now, one other thing. This condition has been present for a long time. We aren't sure how old the boy is when he's brought to Jesus. The desperation of the father seems to signify it's, it's probably been a long time, probably years. And I don't mean to frighten you unduly, But the scriptures are clear that Satan does not spare children from his attacks. This demon lost no time in afflicting a child, perhaps a very small child, with a terrible condition. He's merciless. And as a parent, it it, it feels like you have a lot of time with your kids, right? When you have babies, the years (laughs) and days stretch out seemingly endlessly before you. And it's easy to think to yourself, I'm going to have lots of time to speak to them of Jesus. I'm gonna have lots of time to read the Bible with them or pray with them or answer their questions. And look, in nearly every case, you are gonna get years. But this story is sobering because if the evil one is at work in children, then there's, there's a good reason for us to be as well. There's a reason that when we baptize children and even just in general, we, we pray for our babies to love God. And so I would urge you, if you're a parent especially, But if you work with children, speak to them of spiritual things. We hope children will be filled with the spirit of Christ, not evil spirits. So we have this boy suffering terribly, so much so that his life is under threat. There's a father, he brought his boy to the nine disciples for help. If you look at the end of verse 18, the father reports, it's like, I asked them to cast out the demon, but they were not able. And then in verse 19... Notice the exclamation point. Oh, faithless generation. Jesus doesn't get frustrated that often, (laughs) but he he, he is frustrated with the faithlessness of at least the disciples, perhaps throw in the crowd, the scribes as well, maybe the father as well. We're not sure who his comments are directed toward. We need a video of the scene to see who he was facing, you know, or whatever. But it's at least the disciples, and he calls them faithless Their faith was insufficient for what they were presented with, the strength of this evil spirit. And later on at the last verse, Jesus clarifies when they ask, this is a particular kind of demon or a particular kind of of, of possession or whatever that could only be driven out by prayer. Because if you've been with us through Mark, you may remember the disciples have cast out demons before. They were given authority by Jesus in Mark chapter 6. They had traveled throughout the land. They went from town to town healing sick people and casting out demons. Yet somehow now their faith is insufficient. Why? <laughs> it's a question I want to ask. Well, and maybe more helpfully, what hints does this passage give us of why that is? I spied two hints. Let me point them out to you. First, their question in verse 28, why could we not cast it out? They clearly expected they would be able to. And the second hint is Jesus said, it can only come out by prayer, this kind of demon. But when Jesus cast the demon out, did you notice? He didn't pray. (laughs) He just talked to it. So what did Jesus mean? It's supposed to be cast out by prayer, but maybe that's only for, you know, regular humans or whatever. But I think it means that uh, a life of communion with God, with the Father, constant reliance upon divine grace. This is what was needed for this kind of exorcism. So going back to the disciples question, it seems to be that their issue was their emphasis was on themselves. They thought they could cast out the demon. They kind of made an assumption based on previous gifting, previous blessing. They're like, oh, we're going to succeed again. Demon, we got that. We've done this before. Perhaps another way to say it is they had been given a gift by God, but they came to believe it was under their control. So let's put a few pieces together. The story is contrasting a life characterized by dependence on God, trusting in Christ with a dependence on the self or an emphasis on skill or technique or a reliance upon internal gifts instead of on Jesus. See, the disciples' faith proved to be insufficient because they had forgotten that trusting Jesus starts over every day. Jesus had told them lots of times, without me, you can do nothing. (laughs) And they thought, well, maybe we can do some things. This humiliation, they were humiliated in front of this crowd, in front of the scribes. And it showed them their faith was mostly in themselves and not in God. I had a friend um, when I worked in campus ministry who told me, a uh, great story of when he was on a missions trip uh, in Brazil, and what they were doing is they were, they were taking um, trucks to, uh, to show the Jesus film, a film about the life of Jesus, to small remote villages um, in various places. And every day they drive to a new village, set up a projector and screen, uh, you know, uh, they fire up a generator to run everything, and they invite the whole village, these small villages, to watch a movie about the life of Jesus. And he says, one day they arrived at this village. They're setting everything up. It's kind of late afternoon. They're inviting the whole town. And they notice this large storm coming towards them, clouds rolling in. And of course, a rainstorm would would ruin the evening's work. And the giant clouds are just, just boiling, headed right for them. So like, well, the only thing we can do, we can pray. So they gather in a small group and they kind of lock arms and they pray fervently that God would keep the rain away. And as they prayed... He so said, the clouds split, and they go, the storm went a different direction, and the village didn't get rain, and they showed the film. And he was saying, we were, we were excited, and we were rejoicing, and, and he's like, actually, we're feeling pretty good about our level of faith, like God really answered us. And he said, a few days later, same situation, setting up late afternoon, the wind's blowing, the storm is rolling in. They're like, we got this, let's gather in a group. They lock arms, they pray fervently that the storm would avoid them. And when my friend tells this story with a twinkle in his eye, he says, and we got soaked. Like the rain, the rain poured and it poured like a rainstorm like we'd never seen before. And for that, for the little team, it was a lesson. And it's what we learn here. The power's not in you. You didn't stop the storm from rolling in. Your prayers weren't a lever that forced God to do anything. God answered your prayer, great, but daily grace is required. Without Jesus, you can do nothing. You may have a gift, as these disciples did. You may have been given some authority, as these disciples were. But without dependence on God, without a life characterized by prayer, that gift is useless and even dangerous. And I can tell you, this lesson is really hard for those who have tremendous gifts. Because you can get by, a lot of times, on gifts, on skills, on technique, on effort, and it's easy to believe, it's under my control, and you begin to say to yourself, I've been here before, I can do this. And that's just not the language of faith. Faith is dependence on God, it involves humility, a sense of who you are before God, of, the God of the universe, the power is not in you, it's in God. So just a warning, let those of you who are gifted, privileged, skillful, effortful, beware. Because I don't think faith comes as easily. The faith of the disciples was insufficient. Okay, let's talk about the mixed faith of the Father. Right away, we see some faith demonstrated, right? He brought his son to the disciples for healing. That presumes, or we can safely assume, he believes it is possible for the disciples to cast out the spirit. The news about Jesus and his disciples, I'm sure, had been spreading. The disciples, as I mentioned, had made this trip. They'd hit all these towns. They'd cast out demons. The man knows enough, and he believes enough to track them down where they are. And the disciples were unable to cast out the spirit. Verse 22, as Jesus is getting the backstory about the boy's condition, the father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything. And that comment, I think, betrays the nature of the man's belief. His faith is mixed. He believes enough to show up. He believes enough to ask, but he isn't quite sure if Jesus can help. Now, Jesus picks up on that. He calls him out. If you can, exclamation point, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's get into this. I think a lot of modern people of faith see a lot in this father that feels familiar. I think there are plenty of us who believe enough to show up to a place like this, or believe enough to pray. We believe enough to ask Jesus for help, yet part of us remains unsure if he can. And we may not have the courage to say the awkward part out loud, but when we ask for Jesus's help, our fickle hearts sometimes whisper, if you can. Now, I think this tends to happen with the things that are most dear to us. The requests, the problems, the relationships that that are sort of closest to home. This father is desperate because nothing has worked and no one can help. And even the disciples failed. And now he wonders, like, is Jesus even going to be up to this problem? And he's not asking for like a better Lamborghini or something, you know, kind of frivolous. He's saying, can you have compassion on us for this terrible ordeal that we're going through? It's very real and it's very hard and I think the things that are most dear to us are the places we most, or have the most trouble believing Jesus can help. And just in my experience, it's often things like being able to conceive, dealing with health problems, family members who are estranged or not Christians, marriage partners. It's in these kind of sort of deeply personal things we struggle to believe Jesus can help. Because some of you have been there, and you're trying to have a child and you cannot, and you've jumped through the biological hoops and you've jumped through the medical hoops, and nothing works and no one can help. And when you pray, sometimes your heart whispers, if you can. Or you have a medical problem and it's debilitating and it's never going to get better. It's only going to get worse and no one can help. And the diet you've tried, it's doesn't, it's not working. And when you pray, your heart sometimes whispers. If you can. Now, I think this father has more courage than most of us. Because he says the awkward part out loud. The rest of us, it's like, it's sort of lingering back there. But he's just not sure if Jesus can help. And I think if we went around the room, I think lots of us know what it's like to be this father. Now, how does Jesus respond to a man who has a mixed faith where he believes, but he also unbelieves. He says, all things are possible for one who believes. Now we gotta talk about that phrase. Because <laughs> some Christians have taken that verse to mean things it does not and it cannot mean. What Jesus means by this is, as a human, we must not set a limit on what Jesus can do. There's no limit to God's power. He can heal. He can cast out the demon. He can open the womb. He can, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what some people have done is they've taken this sentence, they've divorced it from its context, and used it like a battering ram, and they wander around hitting people with it and saying, the reason you're not healed is because you lack faith. And the reason you're childless is because you lack faith. And the reason you're poor is because you lack faith. And they beat people with this verse. For instance, I'm going to name some names. TV preacher Kenneth Copeland recently said, there are rules in the world governing prosperity. Faith causes them to function. And what he means by that is a sufficient amount of faith forces God to bless you. He said, he went on, if you have Jesus, no amount of debt, no disease, no problem of any kind will be able to defeat you. Now reading him most charitably, as charitably as I can, it's like if he means defeat in the ultimate sense, like sure, whatever. But the whole of his teaching and others like him leans towards this belief that sufficient faith frees one from debt and disease and problems. Listen to me, that's not what this verse means. That's not what the scriptures teach. We have all kinds of examples of where, where faith, good faith, true faith leads a person into a more difficult life, not a less difficult life. Faith is never presented to us as a lever to force God to do anything. That's not what Jesus is saying. Faith, that, that is actually a pagan belief that you can force the gods to bend to your will. Jesus is saying God's power has no limits. Not that faith can force God to heal you or give you what you want. Now, before we talk about Jesus' response to both the insufficient faith of the disciples, the mixed faith of the Father, let's just answer this question. What do we do if we find ourselves with mixed faith? If you're like, yeah, that's me. I got that. I've got doubts. I've got cynicisms. I've got unbelief. I've got the whole package. Well, I think what Jesus, what we learn here, what he would say is we need to learn to use our faith and to resist unbelief. So the father exercises the faith he has. He makes the trip, he makes the request, he asks for help. And Jesus basically encourages him, believe in God. God has the power to do anything. All things are possible. Whatever faith you have, as small as it may be, as mixed as it may be, just use it. Faith is kind of experimental. It's grown with use. And in good news, other places, Jesus promises faith as small as the tiniest seed. It's enough. <laughs> he basically says, use your faith. It may feel weak. That's fine. Put it into use. And at the same time, resist unbelief. After the, as Jesus corrects the man, verse 24, it records, this man immediately asks for help. Help my unbelief. He doesn't just say, I've got it. He says, help me with it. I know I should be better. I know I should trust more. I know I should have more faith. Help. I think it's possible to get too comfortable with unbelief. We live in a pretty cynical world. It exalts a kind of detachment from caring about things and really asking for things. Unbelief, cynicism, doubting, they're often easier than believing. But to be a Christian is to resist unbelief, to ask for help with our unbelief. Because see, our real problem is not that we have a medical issue or a biological issue. I mean, the the real problem is we we don't believe all the way down. So we need help with our unbelief. (laughs) Because unbelief, if it's allowed to bloom and grow and and flower, it's going to eventually choke out our faith. And that's far more serious than any disease. And perhaps a regular prayer for many of us should just simply be the words of this Father. I believe and help my unbelief. He's got a mixed faith. Okay, let's talk about the object of faith, Jesus. So you spent the majority of our time now on the subjective experience of faith, what it's sort of like from the inside. The, the disciples believed, but, you know, not enough. Uh, Father uh, believed, but he, it was mixed, on, not all the way down. In our lives, we can easily get preoccupied in the same way. We kind of are wondering, how, how strong is my faith? How deep does it go? And then on one hand, sure, that's fine to think about, to wonder about, but the Bible's emphasis on faith is different. The point of emphasis in the scriptures is not on how strong one's faith is, but on the one in whom we have faith. See, if you have really strong faith in something really weak, it's not that helpful. You can believe as hard as you like that like holding onto like a little twig will support your weight like you can you can really believe it but you'd be better off like you know trusting a giant branch or whatever the object of your faith what what you put your faith in that's the most important thing And when I read this story, it feels a bit like a tornado. There's all these things kind of whirling chaotically around the outside. There's a crowd and there's scribes and there's confused disciples and there's this panicky and stressed father. And there's a boy like convulsing on the ground, like right in the middle of it. And then of course, you know, Satan or the unclean spirit or whatever, just active, merciless. But at the center of the storm, calm, powerful is Jesus. And when it's time... When he wants to, in verse 25, you see there, he just simply rebukes the unclean spirit. He commands it to leave, and it does. It's not a back and forth. It's not a duel. Jesus, you know, brings a gun to a knife fight. Like, it's it's just over. And it's even possible that the demon killed the boy on the way out. Perhaps he left him comatose on the ground. The text is not clear. But Jesus takes the boy by the hand and it says he arose and that's that's actually resurrection language. But anyways, but then the boy but interestingly the boy and the father just leave the story. Like wait, what? Where did they go? The tornado just sort of dies away. But the point is it matters who you trust. It matters where you put your faith. And we are being reminded of something this morning. Whatever you face in your life, and I don't know what all of you are facing in your lives, but no matter how evil it is, or how malevolent, or how powerful it is, no matter how much it has overwhelmed the strongest of disciples, it's nothing compared to Jesus. The strongest, or the strong demon is driven out with a command, his work undone in moments. See, we relearn, we remember the object of our faith, the one in whom we are told to trust, has power. And the point of this story is that healing does not depend on the strength of your faith, but it depends on the strength of the one doing the healing. Because look, if this father had really believed that a con artist could heal his son, like this story is just a joke, of course he can't. But because the father trusted Jesus, everything is different. And look, going back to what we were saying earlier, for everyone who comes along and claims, you have to have strong faith to be healed by Jesus. This story actually teaches us the opposite. Because he heals the the boy, the the, the son of the man who had mixed faith. That's the request he, he answered. He helps the disciples with their insufficient faith. I don't think the point is, have more faith so Jesus will heal you. No, it's that Jesus comes to those who struggle to believe and helps them anyways. In the middle of their struggle, in the middle of their unbelief. He saves even the doubting people. Isn't that what we learn here? The man is not exemplary because of his faith. He's exemplary because he trusted Jesus. You know, this story, it's kind of scary, honestly. It shows us the power of evil spirits. It shows us how merciless they are, the harm they can inflict. And I find it helpful, and I'll remind you of this as I remind myself. It's a verse, Revelation 20, verse 1. You know what Revelation 20, verse one says? Sorry, I'll tell you. It says, Jesus has a giant chain prepared. That's what it says. He has a giant chain and it's prepared for Satan. And at the end of time, when time is rolled out, Revelation 20, verse one says, he will seize Satan and he will bind him with that giant chain so no more damage can be done to little ones and to older ones. And when Jesus, or when Paul writes to the Roman church, Romans 16, verse 20, he reminds them, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. So the unclean spirit, strong, hard. Yes, Jesus is stronger. The father's faith is mixed, but the faith he had was in Jesus. The disciples were imperfect. And except for you know, Judas, they trusted Jesus. So listen, what faith do you have today? You got a weak faith, you got a flickering faith, you got a mixed faith, maybe you got a well-seasoned and strong faith. Put it in Jesus. Don't trust in yourself. (laughs) Don't trust your skills. Don't think, I got it this time. Jesus came down the mountain with his three disciples into a world of evil, sorrow, doubt, weakness, misery, powerlessness, but it did not overwhelm him. It did not overcome him because he came to save it. That's the exact world he came to redeem and to make it new. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for stories like this that show us at one, on one hand the very darkness and despair and tragedy of our world and also your power to redeem it. Help us to believe. Lord, help us in our unbelief whether we have mixed faith or some faith or are trying to find any faith at all, Lord, we'll be placed it in you, we'll be turned to you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.